Um, well, I hope to get past the preamble tonight. <laughs> as I didn't last night, as I kept remarking. <clears throat> what I want to talk about tonight is primarily to finish off talking about dependent origination with you, which I'm aware I've kind of left you hanging there in craving an attachment. <laughs> so perhaps I can relieve the tension by the end of the evening. Um, the other thing I want to talk to you about is something I mentioned very briefly, and I just started off on the first part of it, which is uh, the seven treasures. The treasures that will make you rich beyond material wealth. I mean, what a selling point. <laughs> As a, as a start-off. But just one thing I want to mention before I actually launch into those two things, <clears throat> and I promise I won't take long on this digression, um, the thing I want to mention is the fact that sangsara comes to an end when its fuel has run out, when the unfinished business, which keeps it running, sangsaring, has finished. The striking image that's often used in the texts to illustrate this, and some of you might have come across this already, which is the, the image of a candle and a flame. And the candle flame is only sustained by the wax and obviously the wick. And when they are burnt through, the flame goes out. And in a sense, that is Nibbana. When everything has been burnt up, when everything has been, in a sense, eradicated, burnt up, utilised, used, then sangsara ceases and nibbana comes about. So the image of one, as I said, when I described the word nirvana, nibbana to you, is of going out, you know, of actually going out. The fires which are burning, another image, which sustained the sangsaric existence have gone out. There's a kind of peacefulness, a deep, deep peace. It's talked about this as being the deathless, the peaceful, this particular state. And in a way, this is not a million miles. This is kind of my segue to get into dependent origination, because it's not a million miles from dependent origination, because it's saying that all things are dependent upon causes. No thing exists without a cause. And in fact, that's basically the Buddha's objection against much of the talk about selves, particularly independent selves. It's almost as if they exist without any causes. You know, I'm going to discover a real self within me. And if it's unchanging, which this real self supposedly would have to be, if it's real in the big sense of the word then it would be unchanging. And for something to be unchanging, it would have to be causeless. It wouldn't have to depend on causes and conditions. You know, so what the Buddha is objecting to is the idea that there is anything that is causeless. There is nothing, he says, he doesn't use these words, but there is basically nothing that arises ex nihilo. Nothing arises out of nothing. Yeah. So everything arises from a cause. Everything is causally interdependent. What we have in terms of the notion of the self, the processes, the skandhas, the khandhas that I've talked about, the five distinct processes, and those are broken down even into the categories of the five are broken down even further. 
what we have are sets of causes and conditions which are all interrelated with there being no one thing within it which is unchanging. Now this is in a sense, um, as I keep kind of trying to put to you, is the good news, it's the good news, come on. Um, if <laughs> you know, I've given you lots of misery <laughs> over the week so far, this is the good news. The good news is that you can change. <laughs> and you know, sure as it's sure, you're going to change anyway. So now why not kind of alter the process, affect the process, change it for the better, instead of for the more miserable? You know, this is what the Buddha is really, in a sense, saying. He never says it in these words. He says it far more elegantly, I do. Um, but in a sense, he's saying, affect the change, because the change is going to take place anyway. You know, because the causes and conditions will change, since... The idea of the self will change. And if we look back in our lives, haven't we seen many selves when we look back? Um, I mean, I don't know about yourselves, but I can think you know, back to possibly my early teenage years and think, my word, that was a different self <laughs> than it is now. You know, and as we progress through life, you might even take it in ten-year chunks and think, well, you know, the self was quite different then. And in a way, it is, but it isn't. As I kind of tried to remind you a few nights ago, that who you are today depends on who you were yesterday. It's a set of causal conditions which give rise to how you are now. Yeah. There is nothing, in other words, there is one, not one main thread that runs unchanging through your life. And in many ways, this idea of looking back over this life, reviewing this life and perhaps seeing many, many, many past lives in this life is no different from, in a sense, thinking about the doctrine of rebirth. In other words, we are reborn many, many times in this existence. And we will continue to be reborn in this existence as we continue to make our way through life. Um, so much so that perhaps in five years you'll be looking back and saying, oh, that was a different self that was doing things then. So there are many, many different selves, but, of course, there is dependency. That is the important part, that the, the Buddha is teaching a series of dependencies. Who I am, I'll make this point again, who I am today depends on who I was yesterday. So that still makes me ethically and morally responsible for my actions. Um, in other words, you know, for example, um, we could say, if we took this to its furthest extreme, I'm going to give you a silly example. If we took this further, to a furthest extreme and I kind of sneaked over into my neighbour's garden one night because he's got a beautiful apple tree, and I kind of took all the apples off the tree, and um, next morning he comes knocking, he said, do you know who took all the apples? They, not me. He said, I'm sure I saw you out there. No, it wasn't me. It was some other self (laughs) that did this. Why doesn't that work as an argument? Well, because who I am today depends on who I was yesterday. So, in other words, I am still morally and ethically responsible for my actions. I know it's a really silly example. (laughs) But hopefully it makes a point. Um, That... My actions, in a sense, I am still responsible for my actions. They still, in a sense, have their current consequences coming through. 
they might not catch up with me in this particular instance of my silly example right now, but they might in the further lives that have yet to come, um, come out. Because again, remember, karma is nothing other than what we do say and think. It's nothing other than that and gives rise to our actions and to our speech. So we have dependencies, we have causal conditions, so the world that we get is a causally conditioned, causally dependent relationship. And actually, in Mahayana Buddhism, this is taken in a very big sense to say, well, of course, if there is no self in the strong sense of I'm not saying there is no selves, but there is no self in the sense of an unchanging thing, then everything around us is also the same. It doesn't possess any kind of intrinsic existence. And perhaps I'll pursue that a little bit more tomorrow night. But when we pursue this idea to its furthest extreme, what we get is causally conditioned related interdependence. We are all actually interdependent, interrelated, not separate at all. This idea of kind of being isolated, being separate from others, and it really doesn't matter what I do and what I think and what I say, that it's not going to really affect others, um, particularly in the privacy of my own house. <laughs> it's not going to really affect others is, is actually, in a sense, nonsense. And I'll kind of try and explain why it's nonsense. Well, first of all, how separate are we? How distinct and how independent? Something we kind of value in the West, isn't it? Our idea of independence. You know, I'm independently going through life and I don't need anybody, really. <laughs> it's all I have to say about that one. You know, and we, if we just think about it, if we just reflect it on it for a second, actually we're as all as helpless, basically, as babies. Yeah. We haven't grown up in the slightest. We're just as dependent as we were when we were children. Unless, and I can't imagine that many of us are absolutely, totally self-sufficient. And even if that was the case, we are still dependent. But let's take our ordinary condition. I'm dependent for this, which I'm wearing. I'm dependent on the food that I eat. I'm dependent on the atmosphere and the trees and everything to produce the oxygen which I breathe and yet I arrogantly can go through life thinking I am independent yeah. when we're not independent at all in fact we are absolutely dependent on others yeah. we are not separated from others others in a sense and this is where we're going with compassion eventually others in a sense care for us yeah. we are cared for even if we don't notice it. Yeah. All of us are being cared for right at this moment by the ecosystem which supports our lives. We're being cared for in the food that we consume and the clothes that we wear and the people that do the jobs that support our ways of life, like keeping a roof over our heads and things like this. Yet, as I say, and I'm putting this very strongly, that we kind of have this arrogant idea that we are completely independent. That is not the case. As I put it very starkly, we are just as 
helpless in many ways as children. Okay, yeah, we can walk and talk and move around the world, but instead of walking through the world with this grudging resentment that many of us have, and again, bear in mind that I'm talking in generalisations, and we really have to think about our own individual position, but often, so much of the time, we're saying to ourselves, what don't we have? Yeah? This seems to be a common theme, particularly in the West. I'm, we go through the world and say, I haven't got this, I haven't got that, I haven't got enlightenment, I haven't got awakening, <laughs> my meta's not going well, <laughs> I haven't got that one yet. Um, yet, we have so much to be grateful for. So much gratitude, really, for others in supporting us, in keeping us alive. And in certain forms, and this is something I've really learned from some forms of Japanese Buddhism, that gratitude is one of the pinnacle of virtues. Um, Absolute virtue to actually really stop whinging about what we haven't got and just start appreciating what we've got. And actually, when we do that, we can perhaps, in our gratitude, also reciprocate by being of service to others. I met, actually, not so long ago, actually, in this area, um, a professor of Buddhism at Tokyo University, uh, Professor Shimodo from Tokyo University, he was a Shin Buddhist, and Shin Buddhism has this very much at the forefront of its ideas, gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. And I was absolutely astonished, because he used to go into the temple every morning and clean and sweep the temple. I cannot imagine somebody from Oxford and Cambridge doing that, you know, who is in a professorial position. You know, it was this idea of giving back by service in terms of their gratitude for what he had received. You know? And I thought that was such a beautiful idea because so many of us don't do that. We don't do for others out of gratitude. And it might not be the direct person, but in a sense it's the reciprocation of giving back for what we take. And we take so much. Um, all of us, we can't help it. I mean, life is like that. We take constantly in order to survive and to live. Yet we can move into this place which is a completely different space and place, which also is a place of love, in our gratitude for others. And that comes about by realising dependent origination. Not particularly dependent origination I've been talking about, and I'll come back to that, but our sense of dependency our interrelatedness. We all know that we have an effect on others. I'm sure we all do. Even if I am sitting here not saying anything, people can sense (laughs) the tension there. We all know, and I'm sure, people walk into a room with kind of joyful, happy nature, and suddenly the whole room will lift. I've seen gatherings, for example, and I've used him many times, but he's a very good example of the Dalai Lama walking in to a room, kind of everything being lifted just by his presence. And I've seen this with other um, spiritual teachers within the Buddhist tradition as well, just being lifted by his presence. But you can know the opposite, like that cool, chill, cold that steps into a room when somebody isn't of the right mental state are kind of frozen mentally. They might be saying all the right things. I was very struck by a 
a piece in Henry James, and some of you might know Henry James's novels, and this is The Wings of the Dove, and describes this particular person as being polite to the point of brutality. <laughs> Which I thought is a wonderful way of describing how often this fractured, fragile person can be in the world. We might be saying all the right things, but it becomes very brutal in the way it's done. So let us not think that we can move through the world as I've been expressing to you over the night, without affecting others. We affect others continuously by our presence. And we can either affect them for the good, or we can affect them detrimentally. And we can either give, or we can simply take. And so, in awareness of our interdependence, it should open us up to a much greater sphere and ultimately, as I say, and this is where I'm going probably tomorrow night to the sphere of compassion to actually being aware just initially of that there are others doing this for you that there are others who are providing you with life and let's put no finer point on it actually providing you with life and these are not necessarily human others either It can be non-human others which are providing this. All the insect activity that creates the food sometimes that we eat through pollination and things like this. We don't generally think about this, but it's worth calling to mind every so often, again, the nature of our dependency, that we are radically dependent. Now I'm going to kind of let that rest for a second and let go back to the notion of dependent arising that I was talking about and there are really two understandings of dependent arising that the Buddha talks of and remember dependent arising in the way that I was talking about it previously, it was a description of the way that sangsara comes into being for us so it's a description of you and I every day, every moment virtually, is what the Buddha is giving us and in fact this was the content of his awakening Um, Let me just read you just a tiny passage. Um, Again, it's out of one of the very small texts, but it's called a text called the Udana. And the Udana starts with the the Buddha's awakening night. And it says about what the content of the Buddha's awakening was. And it says very simply, an Udana, by this way, is something well said, well spoken. Thus have I heard, at one time the Buddha was staying at Uruvela, beside the river Naranjara, at the foot of the Bodhi tree. Having just realized full awakening, at that time the Lord sat cross-legged for seven days, experiencing the bliss of liberation. Then at the end of those seven days, he emerged from that concentration and gave well-reasoned attention during the first watch of the night to dependent arising in a forward order. This being, that is, from the arising of this, that arises, That is with, and this is where we were started, with ignorance as a condition, volitional activities come to be, what I was calling habits. With volitional activities as a condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as a condition, name and form comes to be. With name and form as condition, the sixfold base comes to be, the senses. With the sixfold sense base as condition, contact comes to be. With contact as a condition, feeling comes to be. 
And this is where I left you. With feeling as condition, craving comes to be. With craving as condition, grasping attachment comes to be. With grasping as condition, being comes to be. With being as condition, birth comes to be. With birth as a condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair come to be. And this is the origin of the whole mass of suffering. Then on realizing its significance, the Buddha uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance. When things become manifest to the ardent meditator, all his doubts then vanish since he understands each thing along with its cause. Now, the next three udanas after that one just reiterate what's being said. So we've had the forward order, then he goes in the backward order, and then he goes backwards and forwards. Um, just to make the point <laughs> that this is the content. In other words, to really, in a way, understand a way of breaking through, we need to understand this chain of dependencies. We need to understand the condition that creates this. Now, I'm going to go through it traditionally, and then I'm going to give you another silly example, because silly examples often make a point. Um, there are two forms as I mentioned really there's one applying which is this one which I've just read to you I'm going to go on to explain a bit further which applies to human beings and then there's a form which applies to non-human beings which in other words is everything and that's very simply described by the Buddha this way often people think that this particular formula for dependent origination which actually has 12 links within it applies to non-human being. It doesn't. It only applies to beings like ourselves with minds. But the Buddha has a description for this. He says, this happens, that happens. This ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. And that basically is the formula for dependent arising. Yeah. In other words, everything is dependent on cause, and when the cause change, the effect changes. Good news again. Yeah, we're into good news, because if I can change the cause, then the effect will change. Broadly speaking, if I can change the causes which uphold sangsara, sangsara will disappear and nirvana will arise. It's as simple and as difficult as that. <laughs> yeah. Very easy to say, very difficult to do. So identifying the causes is absolutely fundamental to this, seeing actually what is involved. And what is involved in one way of looking at it, and the Buddha is giving us just one way, sometimes he will give us 12 links, sometimes he will give us 9 links, sometimes he will even give us fewer than that, in order to describe the, the stuckness. Let's just put it in really simple English. The stuckness that we have in this causally conditioned way of being in the world. Remember my rather unflattering analogy um, one of the evenings, comparing us to Pavlov's dogs. You know, in a way, it is very unflattering, but in a sense, it's quite realistic because we are simply reacting. Remember I put this point again, I'm just putting it in a slightly different way. We are reacting. We're not acting in the world. To act is to act from freedom. What we're doing is we're acting from a causally conditioned basis, which is habit. So ignorance, giving rise to habits, 
giving rise to consciousness, giving rise to the blueprint of this body-mind, which I am. Um, and we can see that. We can see that. And I think I made this point to you the other night. We can see that coming through. You know, out of ignorance, I behave in certain ways. I might eat certain foods, which set up the causes, and they become habits. And I, I have a habit of eating something which is not good for me. And I'm conscious of wanting to fulfill that habit. And that is, in a sense, blueprinting the body and mind for the future. Yeah. In other words, it's setting up causal conditions for something perhaps to go wrong with the body. It's setting up the causal conditions to develop perhaps other habits based on that habit in the future. And then, out of that, we have six sense bases, which are conditioned, because my... You know, immediately I see that bar of chocolate, my eye wants it, and my tongue wants to taste it. <laughs> you know, it's drawn, it's pulled into it. And I'm just, again, fill in your own X marks the spot for this one. <laughs> you know, that we're drawn into whatever. So we've, you know, our senses are not just there. We don't just see the world and hear the world and everything else. It's kind of, it's there for us in a particular way. We're looking for it. We're looking for the goodies in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't just look in the sweet shop for, you know, just, oh, just out of interest, I'm just looking. <laughs> We're looking for something. Yeah. And the sweet shop for the, is actually most of the world for us. We're looking around for something fulfilling, you know, to fulfill us, to fill us up in some way. In all the senses I've touched on it so far during the week. And so. Our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our touch is conditioned in such a way that it doesn't just give us what is there. It's already preconditioned to experience things in certain ways. So that I come into contact with something, um, and we can't help but come into contact. I'm in immediate contact here with all sorts of things. I mean, I can feel the pressure of the stool on my buttocks. I can feel the floor on my knees. I can feel the touch of clothing on my body. I can see you. I can hear the sounds outside. You know, we can't evade the contact. And all the time my mind's going, bub, 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 <laughs> chattering. Oh. And so there's a chattering mind. So don't think you can evade contact. You can't. We're contacting continuously. And so therefore that gives rise to feeling, because I either like the pressure of this floor on my knees as I keep shifting, <laughs> or I like the sounds that are around me, I like or dislike the thoughts that are arising in my mind, or I feel neutral towards them. And this covers a whole range of our experience. All of our experience is coming to us in this way. I like it, I dislike it, I neither like or dislike it, I like it, I dislike it, I neither like or dislike it. <laughs> You know, think about it. You just walk, walk through the world, walk down, like, dislike, neither, like, dislike, neither. <laughs> yeah. we, we haven't got much choice around here, have we? We've got three choices, and that's it. And they're not really choices. They come to us immediately, because they're actually, we're in a sense conditioned to experience them in those ways immediately. You know, as I said to you the other night, you know, even the nice things experience for two years, you sit in that nice, beautiful chair that you've bought and you sit down in it and, oh, it's wonderful. Sit for six or seven hours, it isn't so great. Yeah. You know, it all changes, remember. 
Again, even these feelings themselves, there is nothing stable about it. And this is why when we talked about the five khandhas and the nature of the self, the, the khandhas themselves are unstable. So nothing is stable about this at all. You know? We like things often fleetingly, and then dislike arises, and then it becomes neither, then again like might arise. I mean, this is usually much the annoyance of all those around us. You know, who say, I thought you liked that. No, I didn't. You did yesterday. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, the kind of discussions we get into about our dislikes and dislikes about things. So it's very frustrating for others, and it sometimes can be frustrating for ourselves, because there is something that we, we think that we like, and we want to go back and repeat it, and we find it doesn't do quite the same thing for us. Have you noticed that? When we go back and revisit things? It doesn't do quite the same things for us. There's a, there's a very funny, funny experiment that the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard went through, which was actually to try and revisit the Danish National Opera in Copenhagen, um, because he'd gone to a performance of Don Giovanni. This is back in the early 19th century. He'd gone to a performance of Don Giovanni, and he'd enjoyed it so much, he thought he would try and repeat it exactly in the same way. So he went to exactly the same performance, exactly the same time of night, hired exactly the same box, dressed in exactly the same clothes, drank exactly the same things in the intermission, and he didn't enjoy it quite as much. <laughs> and a really silly experiment, but the idea that we cannot repeat anything. <laughs> we can't actually repeat. And okay, that's a very gross way, but actually we do, don't we? We try to go back and repeat pleasures that we've had. We try to revisit them. And what we've actually found is the pleasure is unstable. You know? We go back and sometimes perhaps play records that we had or CDs that we had years and years ago. And you thought, wow, that was wonderful at the time. I'd really like to hear that again. And it doesn't do quite the same thing for you anymore. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't have the effect that it used to have. And in a sense, all this is indicating the unstable nature of, our, of the feelings that arise. But unfortunately, of course what I've talked about in a way, and I haven't talked about it technically, is that it gives rise to craving. The craving to repeat, often. Um, the craving to keep doing the same things. And that's often how we're driven in this idea of repetition. You know, Kierkegaard's is a very kind of crazy way of doing it. But we're actually doing it in even a crazier way. Because they're just saying, oh, yeah, I want to do that again and again. I really didn't like it, but I'm still doing it. <laughs> and actually, that's a lot of our progress through life, you know. I just keep doing it. It really makes me so miserable. I just want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, as we go through life. Um, and this is our attachment to it. We're attached to it. We're even attached to the miseries. We're really attached to the miseries. We do not want to give them up. And I know I've said this a number of times. I'm putting it in a slightly different way. We don't want to give them up because that misery is what we know. This is why people often stay in very unsatisfactory relationships. Not because they're unhappy. They really experience their unhappiness often. Sometimes these can be, I'm being really serious here, about very abusive relationships. And people stick in abusive relationships. And, and it's because it's the giving up. It's the stepping out into the unknown. I've known the abuse. And you know, from a rational point of view, you, want to just, you sort of sit, sit and think, well, why don't they just go away from it, just step away from it? But it isn't as easy as that. 
And in a sense, that's what we're all engaged in, in a way. We, we abuse ourselves in many ways, and we're attached to that abuse and the kind of unhappiness it gives us in life. And so we have this kind of mythical what we like and what we don't like and what we're trying to avoid. And remember I was saying that we're as attached and, in a sense, craving to avoid as we are moving towards that which we like. And perhaps if we examined it, the bulk of our lives might be that avoidance that we're trying to avoid far more than we're actually trying to grab hold of. Um, but those are unstable. They're moving again. They're not actually fixed categories. Um, and one of the things I want to give you the real sense of by the end of this evening is it's all unstable. There is no, nothing stable about this at all other than the grasping after it. That's the only, in a sense, stability. But we're still grasping after things like pleasures, for example, which will not remain the same. So that when we come to revisit them, like the addict, we have to keep doing more and more and more of it to get the same stimulation. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Sometimes you, you're just engaged in having to stimulate yourself more and more and more to get the same kind of feelings back out of it. And it really bespeaks of a mind which is becoming oversaturated, desensitized to things. Um, when we think of a lot of cinema these days and the overstimulation that it has, the quick way it's cut um, to excite the mind. You, know, you look back 20, sometimes 30 years, and you look at cinema, and it's a lot slower. It plods comparatively. And you don't have all the special effects. I'm not decrying this. I'm just saying it's a symptom, in a way, of our stimulation. And, and really, we don't enjoy it now, perhaps, unless it does have that fast buzz and stimulation and the special effects and the violence and everything else that much of what is there on contemporary cinema is portraying. And really, this is about, in a sense, our overstimulation. And the addict, just like the addict, we want more and more and more and more, and it's got to keep coming, um, because somehow we've got to keep being stimulated, because otherwise we don't feel quite alive um, anymore. So this is asymptomatic of what is actually happening to us, this overstimulation. Um, I joke about this often, I have a phrase, you know, actually the, a lot of the Western world is simply amusing itself to death. That's what it's doing. It's just taking itself and kind of trying to pass the time until death arrives. That's all. Um, by this kind of stimulation that we're involved in. We can all see it, I'm sure. Uh, there was one, particularly with my meditation group on Thursday nights, I've often joked about this, you know. Um, I don't know about other countries, but in this country we seem to be obsessed by soap operas these days. Um, you know, the kind of television soap operas. And I say, if you really want to see a soap opera, just close your eyes. <laughs> you know, if you want to see greed, hatred and delusion, just close your eyes and it's all there. <laughs> you don't need to watch the soaps. Um, I'm joking aside, but you know, it is all there. All the things that we see often portrayed is out on the screens that, um, that we have to view in terms of television and cinema screen and things like that are all there in our own heads. Yeah, and actually, sometimes the journey can actually be far more exciting to go into, into the stuff that's there. So, craving and attachment. 
Craving attachment, and for example, just like the addict, in terms of craving and attachment, you've got this craving for something. I'll speak on the craving for the something rather than craving to avoid. With that deep craving, we might want to put ourselves in a situation, for example, where we get what we want. You know, it might be that if you want a drink, you take yourself to a bar, you take yourself to a pub, and you've created and you manipulate your situation until you get into that situation. Um, it might be the craving to avoid, so you place yourself and manipulate the way to avoid it. And we do that, don't we? Come on, we, I want you to own up tonight. <laughs> that we do this all the time. We're manipulating and massaging the situation so we get what we want and we avoid what we don't want. And we kind of massage it so we do it. Yeah. And so our life becomes one whole process of massaging reality to get what we want. Well, unfortunately, of course, reality ruptures through just occasionally and pokes its head up and says, I'm still here. <laughs> you know, and you can't avoid me. Um, joking aside again, that sometimes can happen in terms of tragedy. You know, reality basically ruptures our fantasy. Our fantasies of avoidance and, um, and pursuance of that which we want. Um, sometimes it can be a serious illness, sometimes it can be tragedies of... You know, losing someone close to you that can actually bring us home to us but reality is still there it still obtrudes on us and what we've done is just simply cover it over with this thin veneer of fantasy um, which is our avoidance and our grasping after the things we want just like the addict here now that has a technical name here um, it's called becoming um, it's called bawa in Sanskrit and Pali which is to become in other words, through this whole process, if you like, from ignorance all the way onwards, is all around getting to this point where we're massaging the situation. We're in the process of trying to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. And the next stage is where we find ourselves in the situation. This is called jati, or birth. When we find ourselves in the situation... Let's take a very... I said I was going to give you a silly example, so I might as well do it. We massage the situation in such a way that out of our ignorance we think, for example, and habit that's growing out of ignorance, that something like alcohol is going to give us what we want. It's going to make us happy. That's the kind of fantasy that we have. And so we go through... It's, it's obviously patterned mind and body. I mean, the really strong alcoholic obviously has a physical addiction, not just a mental addiction as well, it's patterned the mind and body in such a way uh, that my senses are craving I can, kind of, oh yes I can taste it yeah, I can smell it you know, I want it in that way um, and then this whole thing of contact, you know, seeing it perhaps, seeing it there in the bottle um, leading to of course the feelings the feelings that I desperately want this thing then to the craving for it, the absolute craving. You can see how it's become magnified by this time into the, into the actual craving for whatever it is that you want. I'm here talking about obviously a very strong addiction. The attachment, I don't want to let that go. I mean, I can't do without it. It's something that supports me in life. And now I'm massaging my situation. I'm trying to get out of the house so I can get down to the pub. Yeah. Birth is when I find myself in the pub. It's a silly example, I know, but I, in a way it's indicative of much of what goes on till we get our own way in the addictions that we have. 
The way that we create in the sense of being reborn in a particular situation, into a birth. Well, um, as we all know, nothing lasts forever. All good things come to an end, including, well, in the licensing laws in Britain, it has a pub closing time. <laughs> or used to. <laughs> has a pub closing time. So this is old age and death. <laughs> it comes to an end, in other words. So what we have here, now I've given you the example, hoping you've made it out of this, but it's actually not such a silly example for those who are involved in that type of addiction. You know, but hopefully for us it is a slightly gross example. Um, but I hope you can see it in terms of the processes that we're going through every minute, every second. We're actually wanting to get what we want. We want to be born into a situation, but every situation is unstable, therefore it will deteriorate and give rise to another rebirth into a next moment. Now you can either come to that moment with choice if ignorance is, a, is not there or you can come to that moment simply conditioned and that's actually how we mostly come to the moment so every moment for us every moment that we are reborn into has ignorance and habits in it. not a promising start <laughs> to each moment you know when we've got ignorance and um, Habits as being the primary condition which is going to give rise to the whole process and it's going through, it's going rapidly again and again and again we're going through this process of condition so actually one way of seeing this I'm going to use a slightly long-winded phrase is it's situational patterning it's the way that we pattern every situation that we find ourselves in every situation, every momentary situation so this is a psychological description of the whole process of becoming conditioned becoming and with conditioned becoming, there is, I'm not going to say no freedom, because there will be no ability to do anything about it otherwise, but limited degree of freedom, extremely limited degree of freedom within that. Now the Buddha gives this not just to make us miserable, you know, this kind of description. He gives us it because he says, actually, if you really understand this, you understand the process of liberation too. You understand whereby you can liberate yourself. And the liberation in this particular instance, seen very much traditionally, comes by, in a sense, attacking the weakest link. It seems like a strong link, actually, in the chain of dependencies. And this is the link between feeling and craving. This is the link between feeling. We can't help but what we feel a lot of the time. Certain things, because of our kind of neurological system... We're going to feel as unpleasant. There's no doubt about that. If I stick my hand on a red-hot you know, stove, I'm going to feel it's unpleasant. I'm not going to say, I'm just deciding whether I think this is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. <laughs> you know, ow! <laughs> you know, there's not really a lot of choice in that. Um, but for a lot of the things that we are engaged in, there, in the sense, is not so much a choice, but we can, if you like, choose not to react to it. Now, I'm not talking about things like putting your hand on the hot plate, but I'm talking about craving the things that you want, craving to avoid the things that you don't want. Now, one of the things I 
almost can say for a certainty, is the one thing you're not going to avoid is not, is, getting, is not getting the things you don't want. You will get them. Old age, sickness and death. Now, as I always remember in one of the Buddhist magazines, there's a magazine published in the States called Tricycle, and I thought it was wonderful. They had this spoof movie poster. Do you know how, like, in the, in the kind of things that are advertising, you know, the newest, the latest film coming up, it says, coming to you soon. Well, it had coming to you soon in a kind of movie thing, old age, sickness and death. <laughs> you know, it's a way of putting it. It's a very stark way of putting it. But, you know, we cannot avoid we try desperately to avoid those unpleasant facets of life. Yeah? We try to avoid them, but we're not going to avoid them. They're going to come upon us at some point. Yeah? So we can try all we will to avoid them, you know, cryogenics and all sorts of stuff, um, but we will still not avoid them. They will happen eventually. And so what we're doing is actually attempting in some of the Vipassana traditions, to bring a breakage in the link between feeling and craving. And therefore, everything else after feeling drops away and ceases to fuel the ignorance and ceases to fuel the habits, if we can start to do that. Now, I spoke about this, I think, possibly last night, if not the night before, when I mentioned, of course, that feeling of liberation when even just a small habit drops away, when we're no longer compelled, for example, every morning to get up and do the same thing, to have the same drink in the morning, to do things in exactly the same pattern. We're incredibly creatures of habit, aren't we? I mean, I know I'm kind of, if there's one thing that's been over this week, it's how the destructiveness of habit. Then... We are these creatures of habit, and, and even if we just liberate ourselves from one of these small habits, might be even bigger habit, might be smoking or drinking or something like that, in an addictive way, then we have this tremendous feeling of release that comes with that, psychologically. There's a kind of openness and space of freedom that comes in that wasn't there. I'm going to kind of finish in a moment. I haven't touched on the seven treasures at all. <laughs> Perhaps another time. <laughs> but the, that openness and freedom that comes with it, think of what that openness and freedom would be with the destruction of all habits. Of all habits. That would be nirvana. That would be you know, the peaceful. Because as long as we have got habits, we are compelled we are in states of compulsion. Um, kind of again, slightly egging the cake here, but in a way, we're all compulsive neurotics. We're compulsively doing the same things again and again and again, and often those compulsions, in fact, more often than not, are leading to unhappy results. Certainly, the closing in of the cage, because as the older we get, often the more sedimented the habits become, the more difficult, in a sense, they become to deal with. Not impossible, but the more difficult. You know, because we kind of close down existence in the way, that, again, I, I know I talked to you about a little bit over the week. So this would be liberating ourselves from all the bars on our cage, 
getting rid of the cage completely and stepping out into the open. And really, the Buddha is offering us a choice. He's saying, do you want to remain encaged or would you like to be in the open? Would you like to have the freedom of the openness? And that freedom of openness is not just a nullity, it's a freedom of openness, freedom and openness which is filled with, and I'll finish these as a final phrase, it's filled with generosity, kindness, compassion, and understanding about the way things are. So it's not a nullity, it's not a vacuum, it's full, replete with those virtues. I shall finish there. <laughs> Again, let's, let's open it up for whatever questions or points that people want to make. Um, it doesn't have to be about tonight. It can be about any of the nights of the week, any of the practice, anything we've been doing. Anything I haven't talked about. Renunciation is a big thing. I kind of I alluded to it in one of the other evenings um, because it's such <laughs> it's such an antithetical word to the modern world, isn't it? In a way, giving up something. Um, I even find this actually in the attitudes towards doing spiritual practice, meditation. Basically, what people want to do is just add it on rather than give anything up to do it. <laughs> You know, so I continue to do all the other stuff I used to do, but now I do a little bit of meditation as well, <laughs> or something like that. Um, and there's no doubt about it, actually. I mean, the actual Buddhist tradition is called a samana tradition. It's called a renouncer tradition in India. And so the Buddha made it quite clear that giving up was quite a lot to do with it. And of course, in its traditional context, then giving up was a huge thing. Huge thing. I mean, the traditional so-called movement from being 
a lay person to being a monk is called you know, the movement from being a householder to being homeless. You know, from home to homelessness, actually, is actually the phrase that's used in Pali and Sanskrit to describe that. Now, most of us in the West are not going to do that, so renunciation has to be, in a sense, um, interpreted in a, in a different way because we're not, for the most part, I think, going to enter monastic orders. Monastic Buddhism is not going to be a huge part of Buddhism in the Western world. I really don't see that. I, mean, I even talked about the Dalai Lama with this about you know, a number of years ago about this whole notion, because in these, the early days he used to say, well, for Buddhism really to take root in the West, it's going to become a monastic tradition, because that's the way it's always been. And I remember hearing that kind of right back in the early 70s, and I questioned him in, you know, about four or five years ago, and, and uh, said to him, do you still see it this way? And he said, absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. And he's saying, you know, I'm so impressed by what lay people do here in the West, that monastic Buddhism is going to be a part, but not a big part, of what develops in the West. I think that really is the case. So renunciation, if it is primary, if you like, motif of Buddhist practice, has to be seen in different ways. And there's always a phrase of the Buddhas which struck me, and actually he uses it about his monks and nuns, um, but I think it's one phrase that, particularly given the ecological crisis in the West, that one that we could bear dwelling on for a little bit and it's really a phrase of renunciation to be content with little yeah, that's the phrase that the Buddha uses he uses it specifically about the monks and nuns and obviously their lifestyle that they don't have too much and they don't have too little and so they're content with the little that they have to sustain their lives now little in the western context might mean an awful lot more than the monk and nun possesses but it might mean actually looking at very closely our grasping after more, the things that we want, the things that we, in a sense, are frivolous, that we don't need to sustain our lives. So it means looking very closely, and I'm not being prescriptive here, because I don't think I can, and I don't think anybody would dare to be, but I think it means looking at our lifestyles in the West. And letting that phrase, a bit like the, the, the um, metaphrases, echo for a little bit, you know, being content with little. What could that mean in my life? Yeah. What could that mean to the way that I live? Now, it might mean cutting down, as I say, in an awful lot of ways. It might mean coming into a relationship with the things that we have, the needs that we have, in a much looser relationship than we normally have in terms of craving and grasping and all those sorts of things things. Excuse me. So it's, it's, I think, a very, very important idea. But above and beyond even that is the idea that the Buddha says, really, the ultimate renunciation is to want to renounce sangsara altogether. That's a big one, actually. It's a huge one. Because I'm sure at the back of most of our minds, we think, yeah, I'd like to be liberated, I'd like to give up sangsara <laughs> God, but there's just that little bit of pleasure I'd really like. <laughs> I want to give up everything apart from that, <laughs> whatever it might be. <laughs> and so there's always kind of this hankering still after you know, those pleasures. Um, and, the, and that really does show you the, the, the depths of our attachments to it, because I'm sure 
most of us can give up an awful lot, but there'll be some things that we just kind of, oh, we can't give that up, uh, because we think it's going to make us happy. And remember, that's the mythology in a way that we often operate under with the pleasures of life that we have and we take. Now, the Buddha's got, by the way, he's got nothing against pleasure. He just says, be aware that pleasure isn't contentment, it isn't peace, and it isn't the sort of happiness of nirvana. It's not that at all. It's unstable. Pleasure will come. In fact, most of us will know we're enjoying and having a good time when it's starting to wane. <laughs> yep, it has resonances. Uh, when we start to know, I, I'm, I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's starting to disappear by the time you recognise it, because when you are it, you in a sense don't recognise it. <laughs> when you really, when being, there's no you know, being and having here. You know, I'm not a being who has happiness. I'm just happy. You know, for that brief moment in time, or taking pleasure, as I'm really trying to put it. Um, as soon as we notice it as a state, then it's often on its decline. Um, but the Buddha has nothing against pleasure. He's saying, but don't become attached to them. And of course, what we do is, through that complex, and I won't go through it all again, but through that complex, we want to kind of ground that pleasure. We want to repeat it. We want to hold on to it. We want to reify it. We want to come all these senses are trying to make it permanent. In other words, what we're trying to do is hold back, like King Canute, the tide. You know, the tide is coming in and we're going, no. <laughs> Don't come in. Um, it's, we're, in other words, trying to affect the impossible. We're trying to solidify something which cannot be solidified, which is pleasure. Pleasure can't be solidified. It's fleeting. By its very nature, it's evanescent. It comes and it goes. It's like froth. It's the froth of being that we have. But we're caught into that cycle, again, dependent arising, the cycle of being attached to that, wanting it. Because we're still under the mythology that the pleasures that we take, if we manage to hold on to them desperately enough, will be the happiness we're seeking for. We'll invest all sorts of things with the power to give it to us, which simply cannot give it to us. You know, the mythologies, for example, that you often hear around addictions, about people having addictive, um, you know, um, really deep addictions. The mythologies when in their narrative stories about why they do what they do are very, very strong. The narrative stories we tell ourselves about others. You know, I want to be with this person because they're going to make me happy. Yeah. And, and it's an impossible demand in the sense of, kind of, as I indicated again the other night, of almost pointing the finger at somebody and saying, make me happy. <laughs> you know, which is impossible to do, impossible to happen. But, so we're, we're addicted to this mythology of things, people, and all those going to give us happiness. They will give us pleasure a lot of the time. They will not give us happiness. Certainly they won't give us the peace, the sublimity that the Buddha describes in terms of nirvana and nirvana at all. So in a sense he's not decrying the ordinary world. What he's decrying is our attachment to the things in the ordinary world 
because we're under this false, very, very false illusion that it can deliver something it can never deliver. In other words, we're these happiness-seeking individuals. You know, Dalai Lama very much, I mean, one of the major things he ever says is, you know, all beings search for happiness. All beings are looking for some kind of contentment. All beings are looking for some kind of peace. Unfortunately, we're not very good at it. You know? In other words, we look for it in all the wrong places. You know? And therefore, obviously, perpetuate the whole cycle of dukkha and the whole cycle of samsara. So this is kind of a long way of getting round to saying what we ultimately need to do is renounce samsara. We need to renounce the idea that samsara holds anything alluring for us. Because as long as it has that kind of, just that little modicum of, oh, I might be missing something. You know, as long as it has just that modicum of, I might be missing something, then we're still stuck in samsara. So the ultimate renunciation is the renunciation of samsara and everything that goes with it. That's not the renunciation of the world, but the renunciation of the illusion of a world that can give me what I want and the investment that I put into it through the projections that I have onto it. And this is a far bigger story, but I haven't got time to tell you all the bits and psychological components that go with that. But I think hopefully you can get the message from what I'm saying is that it's that seeking for something that cannot be found in this realm. And doing it in a very circular way. Actually, the root meaning of the word sangsara means to go round in circles. Ever had that feeling? <laughs> Going round in circles? Yeah. Join the happy sangsara merry-go-round. Because <laughs> that's what it is. It's the merry-go-round. Yeah. So renunciation is key. In, in one of Tsongkhapa's texts, Tsongkhapa is this 14th, 15th century Tibetan founder of the, the major school of Tibetan Buddhism. He says that renunciation is the first step that you must take on the path. Without renunciation, you don't make any progress. You know? Now, here, of course, it's working with those habits, working with them, seeing them. And in some senses, the renouncing also is in the letting go or creating the conditions for them to let us go. But as soon as, soon as we have that, oh, I might be missing something here, then we're back in it again. So renunciation is absolutely key to all of this, to the whole path. Yeah. Yeah, practice giving something up. It's useful. You know, particularly, particularly if you feel you really, particularly if it's one of those things you feel really bound to. You know, it's that kind of. I don't know if any of you've been on kind of long journeys and travels when everything drops away and you know and you kind of think, oh, what a wonderful thing! I'm kind of packing my rucksack and going off and. I've left all this stuff behind and then you get to some place like India and you've got, suddenly got this craving for something that you can't get in India because <laughs> I mean, they just don't do it. I mean, the amount of times when I've come home to the West and I've had fellow Westerners say to you, oh, when you come back, can you bring me some Marmite? <laughs> 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 or, or some 
proper chocolate <laughs> and things like this. And, and in a way, I mean, what this highlights for us is the things that we really kind of really attach to, really hold on to. And so it's just good sometimes just to practice giving them up here. Just, you know, just to see how you cope. Give up for a while. And, and you also will... Sorry. You'll, sometimes you just kind of go through cold turkey <laughs> about it and you have to go through it. You just have to watch the cravings. And actually it's very interesting. If you stay with the cravings, the cravings will only last for so long if it's not a physical addiction. If it's only a mental craving, it will last for a certain period of time. Not actually that long. And then it will decline. It might come back again, eventually, but then it will decline after a while. So it's actually having, if you like, the courage, and all of this does take courage. I think the whole path takes courage, to be quite honest. Has the courage to stay with it. To stay with the... I just want to get my hand out and put it in the cookie jar, you know... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> like this all the time. But you know, it's it's that courage to stick with that, stick with that process, and not go. So, in, in yeah, the quick answer to what you're saying, I'm going into my long rambles again, aren't I? And the quick answer is, yeah, it's quite good to practice things like that from time to time. Just try it with little things. Well, the sticking with the discomfort, the sticking with it is really what I'm talking about, is, is the uh, having the contact with it, with it, having the feelings that you want it, because you like it. Or even, actually, in some cases, sticking with the thing you dislike. That's actually quite an interesting one to deal with, um, because we all tend to flee from what we dislike. Um, but certainly by the time we get to, say, denying our something, self something that we really give ourselves a treat with, uh, give ourselves a little bit of a luxury with, sticking with those feelings that arise, sticking with the unpleasant feelings that are happening, uh, and watching them actually change. It's very useful to see that, because as I say, they arise and they pass away after a certain period of time. They might come back, but they'll arise and they'll pass away again. And it's kind of having the courage to be with that, and that courage is really like the energy to stick with it as well which is very, very useful. So it's a, good, it's a good test. It's a good, just little practical test. I don't mean give up massive things at this stage, but just try some little ones. Just little ones. Sorry, I kept into that too. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was just going to ask um, whether Buddha or Buddhism recognises any dark forces that are uh, preventing us from doing it more easily, or is it just something that I well, there's this lovely little figure in Buddhism called Mara. Um, Mara is... Um, how do I describe it? Mara's not really a devil figure. He's not a kind of Satan or anything like this. Mara is the voice in your own head. Have you heard that? I mean, I'm sure we've all had this voice, you know. When you're sitting there meditating, this little voice goes, You're wasting your time. <laughs> <laughs> What are you doing this for? <laughs> it's not that important anyway. That's right. Yeah. Isn't this nonsense? 
Mara is that voice. <laughs> um, the, vo- the word Mara actually in Pali and Sanskrit actually means death. It's actually that which kills the spiritual life. Um, in the story of the Buddha, in the light, you know, kind of so-called life story, which is really more of a mythology than a life story, because it's not really, as I say, anything historically known about the Buddha, hardly at all, other than the little bits we glean from the texts. Uh, but in the story of the Buddha's awakening, it's said that Mara tries to tempt the Buddha from his determination to achieve awakening, to see the ways things really are. And even at the end of the Buddha's life, there is still Mara around at the end of it. And basically, I mean, it's very funny at the end of the Buddha's life, because in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, basically the Buddha's, because this is a sutta about the Buddha's death, it's a text about the Buddha's death, and that he's saying, Mara's kind of chattering away to him, and he says, oh, be quiet, Mara, I'm not going to be around for much longer. <laughs> you know, he's basically saying, it's still going to be there. That vo- little voice of temptation is always going to be there. It's whether you choose to listen to it or not, you know, is what we do. So there's not dark forces as such. The dark forces are inside ourselves. Those are the dark forces, if you want to call them that. And it's really this voice of temptation, which is always trying to take us away from the wholesome, back into samsara. Yeah. It's that voice of saying, you know, as I was kind of saying to you earlier on, that voice of saying, oh, in doing this you're missing out. You could have gone to the party. <laughs> <laughs> or something of that effect. Yeah. <laughs> Pun? It, it is the voice of the ego, yeah. It is the voice of the ego. Sorry. Sorry. There are other pleasures, though, aren't there? That, um, I mean, there are pleasures and pleasures. And there are pleasures that make us feel connected to everything else. Mm-hmm. Artistic pleasures. Mm-hmm. And doing what you really love doing. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not attached to it. There's nothing wrong with you. See, there's nothing wrong with the pleasure. The pleasure is not a problem. The problem is, is in the attachment to it. So it could be quite... For example, it could be quite easy in a way to move into a situation where, for example, I really absolutely enjoy being in the landscape and in beauty and taking great pleasure from it being around me. And I think that's something most of us will do. But of course we get attached to it and we have to have it. So when you find yourself in a city, as many of us do from time to time, when you find yourself in a city, you find yourself hankering for, I want to be in the open space of the countryside. So the mind is unquiet again because it's now attached to the idea of the pleasure that it gets from being in the country. So what the Buddha is saying really is that really the mind should be happy wherever it is, in whatever situation it is. And what happens with the attachment to pleasure, it destroys the balance of the mind because we get that attachment to it and we have to have it. It becomes... in a way, I mean, it sounds peculiar, but in the sense of always having to be in nature and always having to see it, as much as I applaud it, can be another addiction. But we have to. Creativity, then. Is that an addiction? It can be. It can be. Yeah, it can be. I mean, anything can be an addiction if we make it such. Well, well, it depends on if you're attached to a form of creativity. 
again, you know, we can attach ourselves to a particular form of it. Where actually, for example, we can be creative with our lives. We don't just have to be creative in you know, the plastic arts or music or the other ways that we think of creativity being expressed. There's many, many ways of being creative in life. In fact, I think actually what the Buddha is offering is, is actually a very dynamic, creative way of being in life. But so the moment we concretize it and make it say, say well, that is the form of the crea- that the creativity has to take, and I must do it, then it becomes an addiction. It's a hard one. It's a difficult one. Because the Buddha is really looking at the roots of our psychological attachment and the way that we can make something, anything, be a crutch for us. So he's really kind of giving us the openness of living our lives much, much more spontaneously. Where we don't need any particular crutches. Now, we're a long way from this, because so, it's all kind of very, very big stuff. So let's not, let's not idealise it too much. It's kind of a long way from where we are. But it really means, for example, if you're attached or, or involved in the particular form of creativity, looking at your relationship with it. Nothing other than that. Looking at you know, how much you need. I mean, give you an example myself. I mean, when I, when I was in the monastery, I mean, I play a musical instrument. I was just desperate to play a musical instrument. I was just desperate for it. You know? Occasionally I'd sneak off surreptitiously and pop some headphones in. <laughs> you know, things like this, just to listen to the sound of somebody else playing, even if it wasn't myself. Uh, and but you know, one of the things it really confronted with me was the depth of that addiction to it, the depth of that addiction to having to express myself in that particular way. Now, if I can come into a relationship with it now, which is a relationship with yes, when I have it, fine. When I don't have it, also fine. Come away to Guy House for ten days, so what? Months, two months, so what? Doesn't matter. So you come into a relationship. It doesn't stop you being creative, but it means it stops you being compelled in this way to do it. It's the compulsion which is the problem. But it's a difficult one. It's not an easy one. None of this stuff is easy. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. I mean, um, in a way, that's what happens when our mind wanders, too. It's not wanting to be in that concentrated state. It wants to be free-fall, watching the mind wandering, going with whatever's coming up. Yeah. Well, relax, relax off. I mean, sometimes the intensity can become because we are too intense about it. We're, in sex being too hard on ourselves. Um, remember a phrase I've been using perhaps it's good because we're going to in about 10 minutes time we'll do some meditation anyway but one of the phrases I've been using and hopefully it will stay with you and probably it's getting boring by now but 
And it was the idea of letting the mind rest. Not concentrating the mind, but letting the mind rest. And I know it's only an image, but I hope it sounds a much gentler image than, okay, now concentrate on the breath, or concentrate on developing metta in this way. It's an idea of actually letting the mind gently come to what is there. And that has the seeds of relaxation within it rather than tension. And I think what actually happens when you get to those states, what you're calling too intense, is actually it's tension coming up. Tension as arising. Because possibly, I'm not saying it is the case, but possibly just trying a bit too hard. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, kind of, it's, it's, it's a good question, or a good remark actually, rather than question. It's, a, it's good because often a lot of us do that. I mean, do this. I mean, if you ever try an experiment, don't try it here, but try really, really concentrating extremely hard. I mean, what I was joking about, almost a screwing up your face type concentration. Really just try to stick with the breath as much as you do. You'll probably find after, and I wouldn't recommend doing it for much more than about five or ten minutes, you'll get a headache. A very low-level headache after a while. And that is a sense, and, and the, some of you might even have had that even in this week so far, okay, <laughs> I've got some, one person opening up, <laughs> that when you try too hard, that's what actually happens, because you create tension. So it's actually getting the balance right, you know, and one way of sometimes doing that, actually, is to, five minutes trying too hard, just let it go. Just let the mind go completely, just let it wander, go off. Try again too hard, then let it go. Try again too hard. Then let it go. And it's actually by doing that and keep on doing this. This is a particular. This is actually very much a Tibetan meditation technique. It's actually beginning to get you to see that there is a correct balance to it. And because one of the procedures then becomes try too hard. The moment I feel tension arising, don't do anything. Try too hard. Once, once my mind is becoming a little bit kind of caught up, tangled up, go back to concentrating. And then go back to, you know, in other words, you're just switching them. As you discern tension or too much confusion as it arises in the mind. And you begin to then get a balance of the mind or feel for the balance of the mind. The, actually, the phrase actually used for this meditation is to use the mind as if spinning a thread. And remember, kind of, if you think about Tibetan culture, where they're making yark wool into threads, and you're using the old spinning thing here. If you get it too tense, then it snaps. If you get it too loose, it gets all tangled up. So actually, being able to spin a thread is, by, is about having exactly the right tension. Just like a muscle. A muscle, if it's too tensed, won't work properly. If it's got no tension at all, in other words, if it's flabby, that won't work either. And so you need to have the right degree of tension. The mind is just like that. And so when you're getting this sense of too much intensity, it's generally the mind is getting too tense. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.